Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. I am willing to bet that 100% of our listeners have never heard of the field of bioelectronic medicine. Neither had I until a few years ago. But after today's podcast, I think you'll be wanting to know not just what it is, but how it can help you. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Tracy. He would have to be called the father of bioelectronic medicine because of his amazing discoveries in the field. By training, Dr. Tracy is a neurosurgeon, but for over the past three decades, he has been a leading researcher who discovered there's a key connection between the immune system and the nervous system that will change how conditions such as arthritis, Crohn's disease, and even strokes will be treated. Dr. Tracy is the president of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research at Northwell Health Systems in Manhasset, New York. He is also a professor of molecular medicine and neurosurgery at the Hofstra North Shore LIJ School of Medicine. I had the honor of meeting Dr. Tracy a few weeks ago at his office. I have to tell you, I was surprised when I greeted him how immediately I felt so comfortable His very amiable personality. He reminded me of Dr. Marcus Welby, the famous TV doctor, icon from the 70s. He also had this glean in his eye when he started to talk about the research he was doing in this field of bioelectronic medicine and all the new papers that he was working on. I learned about Dr. Tracy and his work from two sources. The New York Times had an article on his life and work in 2014. And then a few months later, when I read a Scientific American article, yes, I I actually like to read that magazine, had an article on his work, and I couldn't help but thinking, gosh, this is Nobel Prize medical research. So if the Swedish Royal Academy happens to be listening to this podcast, I hope that that 3 a.m. call comes very soon for my special guest. Welcome, Dr. Kevin Tracy, to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for your kind words and introduction. Well, they're really they're really meant. All right, so Dr. Tracy, we're going to jump right in. What is bioelectric medicine for our listeners so they can get an idea of what this means? They've never heard of this specialty before. Bioelectronic medicine is the ability to build devices, computer chips to replace drugs. And in order for that to come to life, which it has already come to life for patients. It it requires thinking a little bit differently about treating disease. We normally think of taking a pill or taking a drug to treat a disease. And what happens is that that, that the molecules in that drug control a specific molecular response or a cellular response in your body, which helps you to get better. And, in, and that's, that's, the, that's the pharmaceutical approach to therapy. You take a drug, it controls the response, and you get better. In bioelectronic medicine, we changed the dialogue a little bit. We discovered that it's possible to hack into the body's nerves using electronic devices, and that by controlling the body's nerves, we can control the ability of the body's nerve signals to control the targets that the drugs would normally control. 
And so basically, since the bioelectronic devices work on the basis of electric current and electrons, we are using electrons to replace drugs by hacking into the nerves. This has been an amazing concept that has been embraced widely by patients because we actually understand the molecular mechanisms of how to do it. Yeah. We're going to get into a little bit later on because it is fascinating, as I mentioned, why I think your discoveries are Nobel worthy. But can you explain to myself and the listeners too why these are better than drugs in a sense, which you you mentioned to me when we had our personal conversation? Because again, if you're blocking down certain molecules, which we'll get into, why, if you're still blocking those molecules, is it without the side effects? Because, you know, I'll just have to mention to the listeners, because they they see every single day. I can't watch a sporting event or the news, and I won't mention which channel because they'll give away my politics, that you see a commercial for one of the, what we call the new biologics, Embril, Humira, all of these for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, Crohn's disease, which patients, it it has in a lot of ways made, and obviously you were part of this, we're going to get into that also, made miraculous improvement, but Again, there are some worrisome side effects. So why does these devices, which you're talking about in bioelectronic medicine, avoid that? So I think let's, let's start with, with what is a side effect. So, so everything has side effects. Okay, water has side effects. Glucose has side effects. If you drink too much water or take too much glucose, you will have toxicity from too much water or too much glucose. Well, but what to what, the, these, the dangerous side effects I'm talking about, if you don't mind me interrupting, the, the ones that where, again, with those type of medications, I mean, those patients are at risk for serious infections, especially tuberculosis. Also, obviously, when flu season is going around, it's, it's worrisome to these patients because their immunity is impaired. Because on the other hand, they gain the benefit from the inflammation being you know, toned down from these drugs. So all, all drugs also have side effects, yes. and some side effects are more serious than others. The drugs that have been blockbuster drugs to treat inflammation have been, as you said correctly, life, life-changing and life-improving for millions of people. The downside of, of some of these drugs that target molecules in the immune system like TNF and IL-1, some of these drugs have, as, as, I, as I said, have been life-changing for millions of patients. But they don't work in all the patients. They only work in about half the patients. That's an important and we point. Don't, and we yeah. don't know why. Right. And we also know that some of these molecules, some of these drugs cost $100,000 a year or more. They're very expensive, even though they only work in half the patients. And some of these drugs also have severe side effects that can cause secondary infections from TB or other things because they are so powerful at suppressing the immune system. So the idea of trying to develop new therapies to avoid the side effects of, of, of these drugs is an important one. Whether it's possible to do it with bioelectronic medicine, today we don't know. We have been studying this question for 20 years in, in laboratory experiments. And in the laboratory, the bioelectronic approach of using the nervous system to turn off inflammation does not cause immunosuppression. So, so if, if, if this turns out to be true in, in human clinical trials, that will be an important advance, but we don't know the answer today. We haven't studied enough patients yet to know whether the side effects of immunosuppression will be an important 
feature of, the, uh, of future bioelectronic devices. Based on what we know from the laboratory today, I'm optimistic, but scientifically, we don't have the answer. Well, you know, I'm just wondering, too, because the way you, you put it, it's almost like, again, one of these devices are put in, and we, I want to tell the story in a minute, or have you tell the story of some of the dramatic patients that have improved on this, mainly in Europe, where it's been done, but that essentially you can almost maybe dial down the stimulation with a device so that you could still get the benefit and yet not get, you know, the intense suppression of certain immune you know, immune, what we call cytokines or cell hormones that would make the patients more prone to infections. Is that something that is possible? I mean, that it's adjusted, almost like an electrical device of any type? Yeah, it's possible. Like I said, we, the clinical trials to date have been very promising, but they're very early. And there have been less than 100 patients in the world have been treated so far. We have not seen immunosuppression in those patients. We have not seen immunosuppression complications in 100,000 other patients that received a similar nerve-stimulating device for other reasons. So there's reason to be optimistic, but in order to understand the risk of immunosuppression when you're treating a patient with inflammation, you have to do the clinical trials. We have to study hundreds, if not thousands, of more patients. The hope is that because the device can be turned off and because the signals in the device can be regulated, it might be possible to find a window of treatment where the patients benefit by having their arthritis or their inflammatory bowel disease symptoms controlled without side effects. But that's not known. Time, time will tell. Okay. Well, I would like if you wouldn't mind telling the story uh, about the, the patient in Bosnia who was treated with this bioelectronic device. I like it because it involves ping pong, which is one of my favorite <laughs> sports. So would you mind telling the listeners, because it's a fascinating story, how, how sick this person was and how he was treated with your invention. So about seven years ago, the uh, first patients were enrolled in clinical trials in Europe. And the clinical trials were based on the idea that we had developed in my laboratory at the Feinstein Institute at Northwell Health System in New York. And the idea was that if we built an electronic nerve stimulator to control a nerve called the vagus nerve that, that runs from the brain to the spleen, it should be possible to control the amount of inflammation that occurs during rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease. And the idea when you take an anti-inflammatory drug is you turn off the inflammation with the drug. So here the idea was to use an electronic de device on the vagus nerve to turn off the inflammation and, instead of the drug. And so the first patients that were treated were in Bosnia and in Croatia and in Amsterdam. And I, I was given the opportunity to meet the first patient who ever had this treatment. And so I flew to Mostar, Bosnia, in the mountains in the west of Bosnia. And took a couple of days to get there, and finally got to meet the patient who is a big, tall, muscular guy, about 40 years old, give or take. And I asked him what, what his story was, and he told me that he was a truck driver who had been unable to work for many years because of severe rheumatoid arthritis. And the pain in his hands and feet and, and, and arm and elbow and knee, elbows and knees, made it impossible for him to do his job or even to play with his kids. Or, and I said, what did, you, what, what, what did you like to play? And he said, I love to play ping pong and I love to play tennis. And, and in, in, you may or may not know that in Croatia and Bosnia, ping pong is a huge 
national sport. I'm, I'm heading over there. I really <laughs> I'll, I'll go <laughs> anywhere to play ping love, pong. You'll, you'll love it. So um, he was implanted on Labor Day in 2011, and I was visiting him the week before Thanksgiving in 2011. And I asked him what happened, and he told me within a week he felt better, and within two weeks he had no more pain. And he started to walk around and, and become active and started playing ping pong again. And then he felt so good playing ping pong, he decided to go out and play tennis. And to remind you, he'd been muscles had been deconditioned for years of lying on the couch. So he promptly injured his knee playing tennis. Ugh. So the doctors were very upset because a knee injury counts as knee pain, and knee pain affected his arthritis score in the clinical trial to, to the worst. So his doctors literally told this patient, please don't do any more sports until the trial's over because you're going to mess up our trial. Oh, gosh. That, that they should only have that problem. So this, this, this man now, at last check a, f- uh, a few months ago, many years later, is still in remission. He's off all of his drugs. He has no pain. And he's playing tennis and ping pong and driving his truck and raising his kids. And it's, it was such a heartwarming story for me. It was one of the most important highlights of my professional life was to, to meet a patient who directly benefited from literally decades of work in, in my laboratory with my colleagues and to see, to see the effect that science can have on an individual is worth more than any money. It's worth more than any prizes. And I'll never forget meeting him. It was one of the highlights of my professional life. You know, you just verify what I said earlier on about being Dr. Marcus Welby. That has to sound like the longest distance house call I have ever heard. You know, you're willing to fly over to Bosnia to uh, to see your patient, which I, I think is terrific. I think the story is amazing. And you mentioned there was another woman in Amsterdam who I think you mentioned couldn't even pick up a pencil. Is that, was that correct? So, so that's the patient who I have not met, and she was described in the New York Times article exactly right. She was having some days where she couldn't go to work or pick up a pencil at work, and now my understanding is that she's, according to the article in the New York Times, she's able to ride her bicycle 20 miles to the Dutch coast wow. round trip weekends, and she's also in remission. I'm aware of about 10 or 12 patients who are in remission from four or five different clinical trials for rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease. Not all the patients are in remission. Not all the patients are cured. Some patients get no benefit at all from the device, and we don't understand why, why some get better and some don't. But we do know that it's, it's not a placebo effect because right. these patients have had durable re- remissions, some of them that last years, and placebo effect, as powerful as it can be, doesn't last more than a couple of months. So this is, this is a very real biological effect we we just have still many, many more questions about what patients will benefit and what patients won't. The work is ongoing to figure that out in clinical trials. Yeah. You know, what I want to point out to the listeners, too, because this is going to get to the next fascinating thing about your personal training. You know, I trained in allergy, infectious disease, and immunology through internal medicine. And so a lot of my career, I've always been very interested in trying to follow the latest things in immunology. And what we're seeing now, which is so fascinating in medical care, that diseases as different as Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis, obviously one involves the intestinal system, the other, the the joints mainly, have this overlap where treatments are the same because we're dealing with the underlying immunology. And I found this very interesting when I was reading your Scientific and American article. You start out, the first line says, I am a brain surgeon 
who is fascinated by inflammation. And before I let you explain this, I just want to tell the, the again the listeners that it's a little bit unusual for a neurosurgeon to be so fascinated with immunology or inflammation. Neurosurgeons are amazing doctors. They're used to usually cutting out tumors and dealing with hemorrhages. What fascinated you about inflammation so much so to go into the research lab and pursue this line of work? I became interested in neurosurgery when I was five years old because my mother died of a brain tumor Mm. and very suddenly. So all my life, I I wondered about how it might be possible to invent new cures for problems of the brain and, and problems in medicine. So I had committed to a path of research in medicine from the time I was very, very young, before I went to high school even. And in uh, medical school, I committed to a path of surgical training and neurosurgery training. Still interested in research, but I hadn't picked my research topic as a young doctor in training. And while training in neurosurgery at the New York Hospital, I met a patient named Janice who was 11 months old. And she had crawled under her grandmother's legs at dinner time while the grandma was cooking pasta water. And Janice tripped her grandmother, and the woman spilled the boiling water on Janice. And so Janice was scalded over most of her body when I met her in the New York hospital. And so I cared for her for a month, and she was a miracle baby. We, we, we were actually making plans to send her home because she had lived for 30 days, and she wasn't supposed to live that long. And towards the end of this month, I, I was walking by the doorway to her room at lunchtime, and as she was sipping lunch from a baby bottle in a nurse's arms, her eyes rolled back in her head and she died. And I, I, I ran in and I put her in my arm and I gave her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and we worked on her for, it seemed like, hours, but we never got her back. And it was, it was so sad. She was so innocent and it was, it was something that I had nightmares about for months, if not years. And I was haunted because there was no reason to understand why we couldn't save her there. She was, she was an innocent little girl who'd been burned by accident and we hadn't found anything to cause her to, to die, to die suddenly. We hadn't found any infection and we hadn't found any, any evidence that, that she had sepsis. She just died. And so we knew that she must have had some toxins in her body. And we presumed that the toxins were from, from an infection, but we never found an infection. So that was in June of 1985. And in July of 1985, I decided to begin working on the problem of what could have caused Janice to go into shock and die. And could the immune system have made the toxins that did it? And 34 years later, I'm still working in the laboratory on on the same kinds of questions. And it turns out that what we discovered was that the immune system made the molecules that killed Janice. And and these discoveries led to the development and the widespread use of molecules that that you referred to earlier that are now known as drugs, like Remicade and Embril that that sell millions of millions of billions of dollars a year in sales. So so it's it's an amazing it, it was an amazing series of events that caused me to become interested in inflammation, which is something that I'm still doing now, 34 years later. Yeah, you know that. Just for the listeners too, that's one of the discoveries I was alluding to. That you know your discovery that that tumor necrosis factor was involved in this inflammation process. 
and taking it from actually some of the people that had done work at Cornell even years before you, Dr. Lloyd Old, you know, they were really uh, onto something, but you really clarified how this directly affects things. But can I ask you a question? You know, when I did training and when I worked in ICUs, when somebody had sepsis, obviously it was the most frightening thing for a patient. I mean, that typically that's something that would kill a patient. And in the burn units where you worked at Cornell, which is, has a very famous burn unit, I'm sure you know, when so much of the body surface is burnt, you're, again, prone to infection. So, again, what I learned from, you know, your work, which was really interesting, is that typically, again, we think of that when sepsis occurs, you know, when there's blood, when there's bacteria all over the, you know, throughout the bloodstream and the organs, that's why somebody dies. But what you found in Janus was there was no bacteria, there was no infection, that it was actually just from the inflammation that caused her organs to shut down? That's correct. So it's the body's response to the bacteria or what it thinks are bacteria that causes the sepsis and the septic shock. It's the inflammation that causes the problem. And in fact, it's not just true of Janus 34 years ago. It's true of patients who who are in the ICU today with severe sepsis. We have very powerful antibiotics that in the vast majority of patients, the antibiotics eradicate the bacteria, the infection. But for some reason, the immune system keeps up the fight, fighting against bacteria that are not there. If you look Mm. inside the bodies of patients with severe sepsis, you almost never find bacteria. But the patients look like they're actively infected and their organs are failing because the immune system is attacking, is is, is firing lethal weapons into the organs. In a in a misguided effort to it can't shut to, off. To try to yeah, kill. exactly what you're saying. It doesn't it doesn't shut off. That's so right. I'm just curious today at Northwell, where you you know are affiliated with or in the hospitals, are they giving now sometimes for sepsis some type of anti TNF and you know or steroids to try to quell the patient's own immune system in sepsis cases? I, I wasn't familiar with that. Today, the mortality rates of sepsis have plummeted since 1985. Since Janice's time, survival from sepsis has increased significantly. And the main reason that sepsis patients do better today is because we have better antibiotics and we also have gotten better at identifying sepsis earlier. And if you begin treating sepsis patients with antibiotics, oxygen, and fluid resuscitation within the first six hours, you can have a major reduction of mortality rates. And so early recognition has been key to this. There is still controversy on the best anti-inflammatory mechanisms, whether it's using steroids or something else to treat sepsis. And up until now, there is no approved therapies using biologic agents to treat sepsis. I didn't, yeah, I have never heard that. I'm not, I don't really work in the hospital anymore, but I hadn't heard that. You know, it takes me back to, it's interesting, some of the things you're bringing up too, because I trained at the height of the AIDS epidemic in the late 1980s. And one of the big breakthroughs, because so many patients were dying from pneumocystis pneumonia very rapidly. And it was fascinating because the, the two things that made a difference back when, in my training was that using an antibiotic called sulfamethoxazole, which helped you know treat this organism, but also we used IV corticosteroids. And it almost seemed like a paradox. Here, these patients were immune deficient and we were giving them cortisone, which we know can lower your immunity, but in fact, it was saving their lung tissue from being destroyed. So I think that's, you know, again, what what you found really fascinating and almost like 
counterintuitive to what you know doctors you know typically train when you think of sepsis you think of what we call bacteremia or bacteria all over the body but that's in fact not what you found at all which was a, a huge huge discovery i think the discovery that that has helped people understand this is that if you have the right amount of an, of an immune system molecule in this case tnf then it has significant beneficial effects it can in, improve wound healing and it can help actually help fight infection. But too much of that molecule can actually kill you. And, and, and that led really, that, it was that knowledge, it was that understanding that, that, that we brought to this question in the late 1990s that led us directly to bioelectronic medicine because we had spent a lot of time thinking about how does the body normally regulate dangerous things. So blood pressure can be very dangerous if it's not regulated. And glucose levels can be very dangerous if they're not regulated. And so those are two very good examples in which the body, over millions of years of evolution, has developed ways to regulate potentially dangerous things. And the way that occurs is through reflexes. So the brain, the nerves, the ner nerves arising in the brainstem and spinal cord travel to the heart and they travel to the pancreas and they travel to the liver. And the signals in the nerve back and forth from the organs to the brainstem and spinal cord and back, those signals form the basis of reflex circuits. And the reflexes evolved in, in a very precise way over millions of years to control blood pressure and glucose so that when you run up Mount Everest or, or, or lie down to take a nap, your blood pressure doesn't change very much. And when you eat a huge apple pie after a turkey dinner on Thanksgiving, your blood glucose doesn't change that much because the nervous system is controlling these things in a narrow range. And what, what we discovered, and I've been fortunate because I've been able to combine my neuroscience training and my immunology training, when you combine those two, we were able to formulate a model of an inflammatory reflex. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. I, I actually you stole slightly some of my thunder because I really wanted to build up to this. This was, again, one of your amazing discoveries. And I just want, again, the listeners to get appreciation for this because, again, as a doctor going through training, for most of my years as a medical student and even through my years in fellowship training in immunology, for quite a while, it was like the nervous system and the immune system, just two different tracks. They have, you know, we have those systems, they, they serve a purpose, but they don't communicate. And I think you are one of the first people to truly show and help us understand that, in fact, the nervous system and the immune system have a very important connection and maybe you could explain a little bit, as best we can, the inflammatory reflex so our listeners can understand how, essentially, it's not just chemicals like hormones, which patients can all relate to, how an organ secretes a chemical, what we call a hormone, and it has action on other parts of the body. With your work, and again, specifically with the vagus nerve, a nerve that comes out of the brain to many parts of the body, how that actually influences the immune system. Could you explain that? Sure. So the, the, the best way to think of it is when you touch a hot stove. If you touch a hot stove, what happens is before you even realize you have pain in your finger, your body withdraws the finger from the hot stove, and that's called a reflex. And so what's actually happening in that case is the heat of the stove on your finger is activating nerves in your finger 
which send very, very quickly signals up to your spinal cord, which sends signals very, very quickly back to your muscles of your arm to pull your finger off the stove. And a very similar thing happens in the regulation of, of other organs that you don't think about ever, like your liver or your spleen or your heart. And what we discovered is how the body uses reflexes to control inflammation. And we called that the inflammatory reflex. And the way that works is that molecules, like we talked about earlier, like TNF, cause inflammation. So the, the molecules are made by your body's own cells, but too much of them can cause inflammation. And that inflammation is like the heat of the hot stove. And what we discovered are that nerves actually respond to the presence of these inflammatory molecules. And the signals in the nerves in, in response to those molecules causes a, a second set of signals to come back down from the brain to the place of inflammation to turn off the inflammation. The signals in the vagus nerve traveling from the brain to the spleen act like the brakes in your car, and they prevent your car from accelerating. And when you understand the analogy of the brakes of your car, you can imagine now taking a device, a, an electronic device, and putting it on the vagus nerve to act as more effective brakes on your inflammatory system. Yeah, I think, you know, again, if, if people remember the the game many years ago called Pac-Man, you know, where those little Pac-Man <laughs> ate up back, you know, ate up the other Pac-Man. It's how, again, how I was sort of trained to understand immunology that, you know, a bacteria or virus enter our body and those bacteria, when they got presented to what we call white blood cells or lymphocytes or go to areas such as the spleen, which is what is considered one of the filters of the body where the body's immune system recognizes these foreign invaders and then like Pac-Man, go after them and start eating them up. But I think what you described so eloquently in your articles is that essentially though, a lot of this control is coming from the brain, how this all happens. And almost, I, I guess, like the analogy of wires. I mean, people could all understand, you know, when they have their electrician come to their house, that there are wires connecting throughout the house. And and essentially, that's what's happening. You know, I thought when I was reading your work, you know, the vagus nerve for people to really understand, it's called in Latin the wandering nerve because it literally wanders from your brain all over your intestinal tract to your spleen, all over the body. And in fact, Dr. Tracy, I think if you wouldn't mind, I think you should rename that nerve the imperium nerve, which is Latin for the control nerve, because it sounds like from your work, the vagus is an extremely important nerve to control the immune system. It is. It's an extremely important. Well, there's two. There's two vagus nerves. There's one on each side, so it's a paired nerve, and it is very important to control the immune system. It's also very important to control respiration and 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 heart rate. So so severe injury to both vagus nerves can be fatal. And the reason is is that there's a lot of information being carried in these nerves that control a lot of the body's organs. Now we talk about two vagus nerves. Each vagus nerve has up to 100,000 nerves inside it. So it's not a solid copper wire. It's not a coat hanger. It's more like a transatlantic cable where you can have signals traveling up and down in both directions in hundreds of thousands of very small channels. And this is very, very important because the amount of information that your brain is, is, is monitoring every second to keep the body's organs functioning in a narrow range that's healthy 
is an overwhelming amount of information. It's hard to conceive of all of this amount of data. But when you apply that structure, as you said a minute ago, to the immune system, and when you realize that neural signals can control specific parts of the immune system, it opens a new way of thinking about the relationship between the brain and the immune system, and that's been very important. I have to ask you because, it again, it's just something that crossed my mind several times throughout your work, and it's a little, it's a little bit more of the philosophical question, is the fact that your work has shown that there is this connection between the nervous system and the immune system, does it mean that in some ways, and again, I know this is, again, hypothetical, that severe amount of stress or other, anything that affects the brain could affect these medical conditions such as Crohn's disease, arthritis, that, you know, are under the influence of the brain? There's a very, very long answer to that question that would take hours. And so I won't do that to you okay. or your listeners. Okay. But I w- I'll give some simple, I think some, but you raised some incredibly important points. Yeah. So, so first there's, there's different kinds of, there's different kinds of stress. There's, there's the, you know, hunger, hunger is a normal kind of stress, which motivates you to eat. So you don't starve to death. Right. You can think of that as a, as a good stress. And then at the other extreme, you have post-traumatic injury stress, which can cause delusional thinking and, and severely impair your ability to survive or, or even to prepare a meal for yourself. So there's these two extremes of stress and, and most of life is in the middle. Most of life is some combination of quote unquote good stress and bad stress. Now, now we experience the stress in our, in our very complex thinking, feeling brain, but the messages about stress are, are processed in the ancient brain your brain stem, which you really don't have any control over. That's what over. I wanted to ask you, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the part of your brain that controls your heart and your liver and your spleen that you, that you really don't have, have much, if any, conscious control over. Some people can develop some skills in that, but most, most of us cannot control our organs by thinking about them. Now, there is an intersection there, which is very real, and it's hardwired in all animals, and you can study it. And what's interesting about this conversation is that in patients with high levels of bad stress, their, their ability to use their vagus nerve to turn off the immune system is impaired. And so that, that we can study. We can study how, much, how good the brakes are working in a patient with inflammation and stress. And the answer is the brakes don't work well with too much stress. Well, yeah, one of those just following, because I think I saw it in maybe an article about you and about set point. I think somewhere I saw something about vagal tone. Is there a way, is there a way to measure that aside from just, you know, getting, you know, someone, I guess, with a, you know, just monitoring their heart rate and their respiratory rate? There's a lot of proposed ways to measure vagus nerve activity or what they call vagus tone. But that we don't have good evidence because the vagus nerve has 100,000 wires inside of it, as I said before, and that there's two of them, which means 200,000. We don't have a good way to understand how the activity of all 200,000 fibers contributes to specific responses in the heart versus the spleen versus the intestines, for instance. If you, if you treat the whole vagus nerve as a solid copper wire, which is how some of these analyses are done. Or if you ask the question, does the activity of the vagus nerve to the heart, which you can measure by looking at heart rate variability, does that correlate to 
different degrees of worsening inflammation or less inflammation? The answer is probably, but there's not a simple answer to that question. There's not, there's not uniform agreement on our ability to accurately measure vagus nerve activity and to correlate it accurately to the degree of inflammation. Dr. Tracy, do you think there's also any other major nerves that are going to be studied that influence the immune system, or do you think you just sort of were fortunate the way you systematically did the research, finding that the vagus nerve was this, is this the key nerve, or do you think that we're going to discover other nerves that are involved? I think that this is the tip of the iceberg. I think this was the first well-understood nerve to immune system circuit that we were as you say, that we discovered because we were asking a very specific question. But now that we know how to apply these questions to the answers about the vagus nerve, I'm actually quite confident that there will be dozens, if not hundreds, of additional nerve circuits targeting other nerves and also targeting additional branches of the vagus nerve that will continue to come out of this kind of work. I think, you're, I think we're, we're at the beginning of an era when scientists will discover many, many new neural circuits that will have many, many new opportunities for diagnosis and therapy of future patients. Just finally, what I want to conclude with, if patients who have been on these medications have failed and are interested, is there a clinical trials going on in the United States now that they can try to participate in or somewhere they can contact? The clinical trial status of vagus nerve based therapies for inflammatory and other diseases, it changes every week. And so whatever, whatever date we're recording this call today and, and whatever date this podcast is being listened to, the entire landscape can change very, very quickly. I would urge any interested listener to go to clinicaltrials.gov and look up the, whether there are opportunities to participate in clinical research trials by looking at keywords like vagus nerve, vagus nerve stimulation, and see what, what, what may come up that's appropriate to them, and also to, to ask their physicians for any referrals. I am aware of a trial that is planned in the United States by Setpoint Medical in the future for rheumatoid arthritis patients, but I can't speak to what other trials might be coming from either Setpoint or other companies for other diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, or lupus, or diabetes, all of which, or asthma, all of which I've, I've heard interest in and hope for, but for any specifics, I would urge patients to, to go to clinicaltrials.gov. And I'm sorry, one last thing. So there's no FDA-approval product out there yet. This is all still in the investigational stage. Is that correct? To my knowledge, there's yes. no FDA-approved vagus nerve stimulation product for an inflammatory condition. Okay. Correct. Well, I think we've covered so much ground. I, I hope the listeners can appreciate that we really are on the cusp of a huge breakthrough for so many medical conditions. This is just another whole new field that's opening up. Dr. Tracy, do you think that we're going to have to have what we call, I guess, neuroelectricians as a specialty in medicine, or is this going to fall under the purview of the neurosurgeons or the rheumatologists? I think that we will go through several generations of these kinds of therapies. I think that for the foreseeable future, neurosurgeons will be the principal implanters of, of very small devices the size of your little fingernail to start. Wow. That's what we have today. I think very soon after that, in the next coming years, we will see the devices get even smaller to the point that they can be injected or placed by interventionalists, people who can go in 
with either ultrasound guidance or or other kinds of imaging guidance, and so that will go into the hands of, of other caregivers. I think the key to this all along is that the primary interface, after the devices are implanted, the way that it, it, it that is projecting today, and this can change, but the way that it's projecting t- today is the patients will continue to be treated by their specialists in the field of their illness. So Crohn's disease patients will continue to be treated by gastroenterologists, and rheumatoid arthritis patients will continue to be treated by rheumatologists. But what will happen in, in those doctors' visits, and some of these, of course, can be telemetry or, or remotely or, or video conferenced, is the doctor and patient will exchange information about the status of the disease, and then and the doctor, rather than writing out a paper prescription, she will type instructions into her iPad or into the Internet, and that will control the device to reset the, the, the therapy needed for the patient for the next six weeks. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And I think that's... That that's gonna happen. Yeah, I'm, I was about I'm to say it sounds like there's gonna be an app for that. You know, I can I hope within my lifetime I get to see that. Well, Dr. Tracy, I thank you for sharing your valuable time when you got to when I got to meet you and for our listeners. I think this is really gonna be eye opening and that more and more people become aware of this and have hope for the future for their medical conditions. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at DeanMitchellMD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.